Well, would you please open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, coming to the end of our book of Ezra. And we've got a whole other book waiting for us. It will work out perfectly. We'll get a break to um, celebrate and worship around Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, coming up in a couple of weeks. That's funny, I'm talking and I'm, I'm just like sitting here doing this with my Bible and I'm not getting to Ezra 9. Oh, and I forgot I had even bookmarked it. Ezra chapter 9, I'm reading from the ESV this morning and I'm going to read uh, the chapter in its entirety. And you can follow along with me if you don't have the ESV, um, it's up on the monitor. After these things had been done, what things? Everything in chapter 8. The officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with these peoples of the lands. And in this faithless, excuse me, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been. Sorry. But now, for a brief moment. <laughs> Man, I'm. No, I'm not. I know what I'm saying. I'm just caught here. Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and in Jerusalem. Verse 10. And now our God... What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of, 
excuse me, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped. As it is today, behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. Amen. I feel like this morning I could have just read that and left it this day. If you couldn't tell, man, the, the, the crux of where I want to land this morning is verse 8. But to really summarize the entirety of this chapter in, in terms of Ezra's heart and Ezra's aim, um, the weight that he is conveying throughout chapter 9. Verse 2 really speaks to this matter. It says again, let me read it. The holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of this land. So I want to use this verse today as a jumping off point for us to see that as God's people, we are unlike any other people in this world. At least we ought to be unlike any other people in this world. Not just in behavior, not just in behavior, church, but in nature, in, in essence, which is and comes by the result of a deep and significant transformation of the heart. And it's from this reality then, from this place of having been transformed that we then live out of. So we're not just different because we act different. We're different because we are. And the word there means is, is ontological, is the theological term. In, in our being, having to do with our very utmost being, we are different in nature. And thereby, in our nature, we act and we behave differently. Right? Okay. I know who it was. <laughs> And I, last week I, I referred First Peter chapter 2, and I'm not going to take us back there again, but I just want to point something out in, in Peter's language in the King James Version. The holy nation, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The holy nation is peculiar people, is the way that the, it, King James has translated it. But listen, we think of peculiar as weird sometimes. And in fact, I think some Christians have actually thought peculiar meaning weird. We're not talking about weird. We're talking about uncommon, perhaps even unfamiliar to the world that's around. That's what that translation meant by it. We are an uncommon 
and unfamiliar people because the likes of which so few have seen across the history of creation. How many people feel unfamiliar from time to time? Yeah? Just even Shan and I, as we endeavor to raise our children in a kingdom fashion, simple and small things, we get the weirdest looks sometimes. It was interesting. I was talking to somebody recently at one of my son's baseball games, and we're in such a post, 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 post Christian existence that this idea of being separate on a Sunday like, is totally foreign. I mean, maybe, what, 30 years ago, it was like, oh, yeah, you go to church on Sunday. But now people are like, what are you doing? You don't play baseball on Sunday because why? It's super strange. But this is the uncommon and unfamiliar world in which we exist within. And this is the issue for Ezra. And just in case I haven't made the obvious connection, I want to make the obvious connection as well. Because the matter for Ezra, God's people, and also by an extension of those two, the covenant of God with his people, they're at the brink of becoming unidentifiable from the rest of the people of the world. That's, that's the kind of the, the pinnacle here of chapter 9. And it's interesting too, we've gotten to this point and if you've been with us through our study, we've seen chapter after chapter of opposition after opposition after opposition in the natural, right? Civil authorities, people of the land, whatever oppositions, you know, they've come against, they've been able to overcome. But now it's interesting here, we find ourselves in this place where the opposition doesn't come from outside, it's coming from within, from within their own hearts. And it's almost like, remember too, it's a... It's, it's God foretelling or giving us a picture of the promise of what would be, of Ezekiel's prophecy where he says, where God says to his people that I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you. And he says, I will give you a new spirit as well. I'll give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will remove, he says, the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then God says this to his people, I will put my spirit in you. And I will cause you, Ezekiel prophesies, to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And then he goes on and he says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Listen, church, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all uncleanness. Listen to the language. I will give, I will put, I will cause, and you will be. And so the matter here for Ezra, as I said, it's pointing to this prophecy in Ezekiel when this would take place through the transformation that would come in the new creation through Christ Jesus the new heart. And so they're dealing now with this inward turmoil, with this inward opposition. And so as we discuss this internal transformation of Ezra 9, I want us too to remember the lens from last week, the command to God's people to be separate and set apart. Remember I spoke on that last week. 
the work of the people of God to be separate and set apart. And these are two different realities. Separation means being unassociated with and identifiably distinct from something, in this case, the surrounding world. Being set apart means that in our separation from the world, there's a purpose for the separation. In other words, we are set apart for something. So these are two different realities. Both are commands for God's people. And I don't want us to lose sight of that as we look now to this inward transformation that the new covenant brings, that Jesus Christ, only Christ Jesus could and would bring for humanity. And so I want to begin with the context, and the context is obvious. The context of Ezra chapter 9 is the matter of marriage. God's people have taken for themselves wives, not of Israel, but of the surrounding nations. On the surface level, it seems to be another example of the people of Israel having a bit of a superiority complex. That's what it looks like. In fact, some have even made it about an issue of race in the past. Some have. But let's not be confused. It has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with spirituality. Everything to do with spirituality. Ezra isn't concerned with Israel's marriage to non-Israelites. He's addressing Israel's marriage to non-believers. And this is why. Ezra's concern, as well as God's, of course, was that if Israel continued in this practice of taking for themselves wives of the surrounding culture, if they were to continue in this practice, listen, the distinctiveness of Israel as God's people would dissolve. And the line through which the promised Messiah, Christ Jesus, would disappear. It's a matter of the greatest importance, church. This is why Ezra is sent by God, essentially. Absolutely not. This must not end. The people must return to me once again and obey my commandments. And it's very interesting, church. The word in verse 2, when it says that the holy race has mixed with itself, the word for race is really the word seed. The holy seed has mixed with itself. Church, this is, we're, we're now getting into the purity of the thread of redemption throughout history in God's mind. The lineage by which Christ Jesus would come and by which those who would follow after him would also come. And so God is protecting here and he's concerned with this holy seed. And church, can I say, just to connect it too to us today, God is still concerned with the holy seed. Perhaps not the same as in that moment because Christ has come, because Christ has died and he has risen. But there is something of the, of the kingdom culture, the seed of the kingdom that we now carry as those who have come after Christ, that God is still intent that we would preserve, that it would remain pure, that we would guard it, like I said last week, that we would preserve it and carry it until that day. One commentator would write this. 
Should it not have stopped, Israel would no longer be the covenant bride. Think of just the implication. Israel would no longer be the covenant bride, recipient of the promises given to Abraham, to Moses and David, and through whom all the families of the earth, Genesis 12, all the families of the earth were to receive a blessing. In other words, literally the faithfulness of God to his word and to his promises are what is at stake here. And again, in a sense, nothing has changed for us today. In this, that the testimony of God runs the risk of being diluted by a people who have become blended with the surrounding world. The testimony, the purity of the gospel church in me, just as much as in you, run the, runs the risk of being diluted from the surrounding world. And it's interesting too, we can carry this into the new covenant and we see Paul picking up on this theme when he addresses the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. And he talks about the reason why a believing woman should not take a believing, unbelieving husband as a spouse or a believing husband should not take an unbelieving wife. Why? Because God doesn't want you to be happy and marry the person that you love. No. God can do anything. God can call any person. But the issue has to do with distinctiveness. And because Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, he, he says, what, what does it have in common between lawlessness and righteousness? Or light and darkness? And the words that he talks about in being unequally yoked there have to do, he says, with partnership and with fellowship. In other words, he says, what fellowship does lawlessness have with righteousness? And what partnership does light have with darkness? Brothers and sisters, it's a matter of partnership and fellowship. So this isn't just an Old Testament Israel thing. This is an issue for the people of God from the Old Covenant on through the New Covenant. And I think that connection is apparent for us, but I'm just wanting to drive it home. And can I just say, too, there's not a condemnation in this this morning. If you yourself or a family member are yoked unequally in the sense of what Paul would say, because God can do all things. God draws the hearts of men and women to him. But if you haven't married yet, consider these things. It's, it's something bigger. It's something more beautiful it has to do with the kingdom of God and the effectiveness for living within the kingdom of God. Plus two, what's more significant in God's economy than the picture of marriage? Marriage is so much more than just a husband and wife. Paul tells us in Ephesians that marriage is all about God and his bride. It's a reflection, which is why as believers, we are absolutely intent on having a biblical understanding and representation of what marriage is. Marriage for God goes much beyond just a single man and a single woman. It has everything to do with being a picture to the watching world of him, his love for his bride, what he has done, how he has rescued her, how he has washed her clean, how he, he keeps her and how he returns for her, right? 
And it's interesting, for Ezra, he's dealing with the fact is Malachi would speak, I believe it's Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10 through something. Malachi's addressing the people of Israel for their faithlessness in this issue specifically. And what Malachi judges the people for is that they have literally left the wives of their youth and they have taken, they've divorced their wives of belief, their believing wives, and they've taken for themselves wives of the surrounding culture. And this is what Ezra is dealing with here in this moment. And Malachi says that for God, the issue is their godly offspring. And can I just say again for us to make that connection one step further, church, it's not just children, it's fruitfulness of our life. The reason that this issue of being blended and being diluted as a believer by the surrounding culture has to do with fruitfulness and effectiveness. It's not just our believing children. While it is that, if he can stay awake this morning, I'm just kidding. I'm just giving, I'm just giving a razz because he was yawning while I was pointing him out. So this is the issue for Ezra. But can I just say this too? Please hear me. This isn't just about marriage. This is about the union of light and dark in all matters of our life. And our spiritual offspring, the fruit that comes through us being separate and set apart unto the Lord. It's about the separation of ourselves in every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life. See, that's the bigger picture. It's not just about marriage for us, brothers and sisters. It's about all of it. See, even for Ezra, this isn't something new. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me, please. Listen, if this feels heavy, I want you to know something. Verse 8 is still very much in my sights this morning. And I've entitled my teaching this morning, Grace Upon Grace. Because there is an answer to the weight that this causes us to feel at times. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's interesting that the, that the list that Ezra of, of nations and kingdoms that Ezra lists in chapter 9 I want you to listen to the list of people in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and see if we can pick out some similarities here and then I'll point out the significance in it. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering. Listen, this is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel, telling them what they are to do once they take the land that he has promised to them. And once he has brought you in to take possession of it, and he clears away many nations before you, and then he lists off who those nations are, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, uh-oh, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me. 
to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Complete and utter destruction. It's like the leaven that I spoke of a couple of weeks ago when Passover was first celebrated after the temple was finally built and dedicated once again. The people going through their homes on Passover, looking for every single solitary speck of yeast that would remain, that would contaminate their homes. And so did you notice some of the similarities of the nations listed between Deuteronomy 7 and Ezra 9? Some of these nations, it was interesting, I didn't know this, I'm just pointing out something to you in my study, but some of these nations didn't actually even exist when Ezra is writing this letter. And so in other words, Ezra is understanding that this issue that he's dealing with here is the same issue that the people of God dealt with here, and almost in a prophetic sense, the same that they'll deal with here in the future. In other words, the enemy is the enemy is the enemy is the enemy. And Ezra, just in his wisdom, understands the broader view of what God is doing. And I wonder if the people picked that up. I'm sure they did. But Ezra, being a wise man of the law and well-studied in the Pentateuch, he probably made the connection for them as well, huh? These kingdoms were earthly kingdoms, representative of the enemies of God's people, the opposition of God's people who still, in a sense, exist to this day, don't they? In some form or fashion. We too, church, are called to the absolute and complete destruction still to this day of these surrounding enemies within our lives. Is that, is that too, like, out there? Do we understand what I mean by that statement? God's calling us today, church, to inspect the deep crevices of our hearts for the leaven. He wants us to remove from ourselves the contaminants of the surrounding culture. Why? Because he just likes to walk, watch us work really hard? No, because it's about the fruitfulness and God's godly offspring. It's about the purity of God's people. It's about the distinctness, the distinctiveness, right? 